Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You know, I'd said earlier in the series that probably the most important uh, verse in all of God's Word is Genesis 1-1, and you could make an argument that the most important chapter in all of God's Word is Genesis chapter 3. Because here in this chapter, we're going to find the origin of evil. We're going to find the tactics of Satan. We'll see the depravity of man. We're going to find out how God feels about sinners like you and me. We'll see the only means of salvation that God has provided. And we'll even see the beginnings of prophecy. You know, when Jesus on that Emmaus road was speaking with two individuals who didn't know who he was as he was talking with them It says that he began to teach them about Christ from Moses, beginning with Moses and the prophets. And if you're talking about Moses, you're talking about Genesis, that there's a good chance that Jesus, as he was on the Emmaus Road, was speaking to those gentlemen about Genesis 3.15. Now, we're not going to get there this morning, but this chapter is chocked full of important principles that all of us need to know and understand. You know, so many times we as Christians, the the question that's often posed to us, sometimes with a bit of smugness, is where does evil come from? Why is our world uh, the way that it is? And uh, really what I want to do when that question is posed is to hoist it back on them because, quite frankly, they have no answers themselves. Uh, They want to attack us. Well, evolution, secular humanism, they've got no answers for the origin of evil. The Bible gives us answers. And we're going to see there are some elements of this, of Satan and his fall, that are shrouded in a bit of mystery. But the Bible does give us definitive answers. Now, you may not like the answers. And you may choose not to believe in the answers, but God's Word really gives us the only possible explanation for why the world is the way that it is. And we find it right here in Genesis 3. Well, what's the context of this chapter before we jump into it? What have we seen so far? Well, we've seen, as we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2... We've seen the glory of God, and we've seen man as the crown of his creation. That God has made everything that we see and even what we can't see, and he made it perfectly, and he made it good. And then he made man and the woman, and he put them right there in the middle of this beautiful garden. He gave them a great home to supply every need that they could possibly have. And he gave Adam a vocation. He gave him a responsibility, and he gave to him a partner a helper, a counterpart in this work and this mission that God had called him to. And then he says, basically, go have fun. Enjoy it. I've given you all this to enjoy. But you remember there was one other element of this garden. There was a test, wasn't there? That God is going to give man a choice. And so he plants a tree in the middle of this garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, of any tree you can eat, but of that tree you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God gives man a choice. It's a test. Every great profession must be 
tested. And what is the test? What is the choice? The choice is I believe in God and in his word and I know life. Or I disbelieve and I disobey and I know death. And quite frankly, that's the same choice that is extended to every one of us today. Believe in God and his word and no life. Disbelieve, disobey, and no death. So that's the context of the story as we pick it up in Genesis 3. So let's begin to read there. We'll read down through verse 13. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, surely, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And as always, Lord, we pray that you would make it alive to us, that as we open this book, we know that it is no no ordinary book. This is the living word of God. And God, I pray that you would speak to us in it. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey and feet to follow. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of who you are, who we are, and how we're to interact with you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage, I really want us to see three things. Number one, we're going to look at the deception of Satan. And then we're going to see the depravity of man. And then finally, we're going to see the devotion of God. So three Ds. Let's start with the the deception of Satan. We're going to find Satan's tactics right here. And one of the things that you're going to notice as we walk through his tactics, his tactics have not changed. Same tactics he used right here in Genesis 3, are the same tactics he uses today. I think he follows the motto, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. He keeps using it because, quite frankly, it still works. So let's look at it. We see in verse 1, the serpent kind of appears onto the scene. Um, Scripture in Ezekiel and Isaiah gives us some indication of the fall of Satan, that we don't understand it, quite frankly. It's incomprehensible to me how one who is the bright and morning star would lead a rebellion away from God. We don't know why. Maybe he, he got frustrated that it wasn't really about him, that it was all about Christ, and he became selfish or prideful. But he leads a rebellion, a third of the angels go with him. 
Some say that occurs between verses 1 and verses 2 of Genesis 1. I tend to believe it occurs before Genesis chapter 1, but there's some mystery shrouding that. But it's important for us to understand, I think right here, that when we talk about evil, we're not just talking about some abstract concept. We're talking about a very real and a personal and an intelligent being known as Satan. And he's right here. As we encounter man and the woman in Genesis 3, he's already there. And as we're going to find out next week, God's going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. There's going to be this spiritual conflict. Satan is in battle with man throughout Scripture. It kind of is the undercurrent of all of God's word fighting against man. In fact, you you see this. It it brings clarity to all the Old Testament stories. When David goes out to fight Goliath, he understands, I'm not just fighting that big giant. I'm fighting evil. I'm fighting Satan. That's why he says, I come in the name of the Lord God. And we see this undercurrent. And Satan's going to be there at the end, isn't he? In fact, in, in Revelation 12, 9, it refers to Satan as the ancient serpent, the serpent of old who deceives the whole world. So here he is, here's evil, here's Satan coming in. He comes in the form of a servant, serpent. Satan never takes the form of a man in Scripture, of a person in Scripture. There's only one place where he personally attacks an individual, and it's in the garden when he comes to attack Christ prior to him going to the cross. We're going to find out his whole goal is we're going to find out who the seed of the woman is who will come and crush Satan's head, and his whole desire is to cut off that seed. Now I'm getting to next week, so we got to stop, all right? So you got to come back next week, get the rest of that. But here we see Satan. He arrives on the scene. He's taking the form of a serpent. We don't know what the serpent looked like. Um, but pre-fall, most believe he was probably one of the most glorious of all God's creation. Eve is not going to recoil at the sight of the serpent. She's going to be drawn in. And she begins a dialogue with the serpent And what does Satan do? This is the first tactic of Satan. He's always, his first tactic is always to attack the truthfulness of God's word. That's always his attack. And so what does he do right there in verse 1? Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that what God said? No, that's not what God said. God said you can eat from any tree, just not this one. But he's altered. He's so subtle. He's crafty. He knows what he's doing. He just subtly begins to alter the word of God. But he is a deceiver. He always attacks the truth. And then what does Eve say? Eve, in response to the serpent, she says, we can eat from any tree of the garden, but in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from that tree or touch it or you shall die. What has she done now? Now she's added too, hasn't she? So Satan has altered. Now she starts to add to the word of God And she adds this phrase. She goes beyond God's admonition. Now, I personally tend to see here the beginning of what you would call legalism. Legalism is always going beyond God's word and adding restrictions that he himself has not put there. And the heart of legalism always is moving away from relationship and making it all about the rules. And that's what she's done here. So we've seen an altering. Now we've got an adding. And there's something else she did in her response. And it's subtle too, but it's important. She says that of that tree, we shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, is that what God said? No, it is not. What did God say? Eat from it and you will surely die. Remember, we stopped and talked about that. It's a very emphatic statement. Jesus or God says, you eat from that tree, you are dead, dead. 
Now, this is very subtle, but what is she doing here? She's diminishing the judgment of God. So we've seen an altering of God's word. We've got an adding of God's word. We've got a little bit of subtracting of God's word. But any time we start messing with God's word, we're in deep trouble. But then we see Satan's second tactic, which she has kind of led into. He attacks the truthfulness of God's word, but then he begins to deny the judgment of God because Satan's going to move in verse 4 from doubt to denial. He says, you surely will not die. What he's telling Eve is you can do whatever you want to do and there are no consequences. Listen, that is the message of the world. You can do whatever you want to do and there is no accounting to God. You can get away with it. You can escape the consequences. And then we move to his third tactic in verse 5 is to doubt the goodness of God. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Essentially what he's saying here to Eve is, Eve, God is depriving you. God is restricting you. Eve, you are not sovereign. Eve, you are not in control. Eve, you cannot do whatever you want to do. And Eve, if you want to remain in this little cage of God, that's fine. But as long as you remain in that little cage, you'll never know all the fullness of who you possibly could be if you went outside of God's boundaries and restrictions. You know, even today, what do we hear? If we could just eliminate these archaic Christian structures about marriage, if we could just remove those things, then we'd find out what real love is. Isn't that the message of the world? But if you can go beyond God's boundaries, that's where true fulfillment is found. That's where true joy is found. And what do we know in God's word? That true joy is not found going outside the boundaries, but learning to live within them. But that's the law of Satan. It's incredible, these tactics, these tactics that he used right here, the same that he uses today. The truth of God's word is not reliable. You can't count on it. There are no consequences to sin. You can do whatever you want to do and you can get away with it. And you listen, God's not really good. He's just holding out on you. That if you really want to know fulfillment, you've got to jump the bounds. Well, well, well look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree, so he's lured her in. She sees that the tree is good for food. That's the lust of the eyes. And was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the fe- flesh. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that's the pride of life. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband uh, with her, and he ate. And I think this is a powerful picture here, because Satan always works from the outside in. He begins with our eyes. Satan can't control the soul. But what he does is he gets us to take our focus off of the truthfulness of God's word and who God is, and he puts our focus out there on something else, and he begins to lure us in. That's why I always tell, especially our young people, and really for all of us, we need to remember this. we got to be very careful about what we view with these eyes. And Jesus talks about the eye being the window to the soul. He talks about if your eye is clear, your life will be good. Boy, we got to be careful. That's how Satan works. He appeals to our senses. He appeals to our emotions. He appeals to our mind and our intellect. You know, one of the greatest lies that often can be found even in the church is go with your gut or follow your heart. Do you know what the presupposition is behind that statement? That your heart is good. And what does the Bible tell us? That our heart is desperately wicked. So you see what Satan's done there? His tactics have not changed. So 
Here is Eve. She's drawn in. She sees this fruit. She takes of it, and she gives to her husband, and he's going to eat also. And the picture here is, I think that sometimes in my own, I don't know how you view this, but in as I've read these things, oftentimes I've thought of Adam being on the back 40, you know, working the ground, hard at work, and he's not there as they're having this conversation. But that's not the picture that Scripture gives here. The picture that Scripture gives here is that Adam's been standing there the whole time. Now, what should have Adam have done? He should have stepped in the gap and said, get behind me, Satan, not in my house. We know the truthfulness of God's word. He should have protected his wife. He should have led her. But what is he going to do? What do we see here? We see a role reversal, don't we? Now, Eve is leading and the man is submitting. Adam has become passive in his leadership. And it's going to lead to the destruction of the home. So Adam neglects what he should have done. And here we see the depravity of man. Look at what happens in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. One commentator has said this is the most anticlimactic verse in all of God's word. Because Satan promises, he promises Eve, if you eat from this tree, you're going to become like God. Now that's a pretty amazing promise, isn't it? You're going to get to become like God. She eats of it, and what happens? She just finds out she's naked. Isn't that sad? Isn't that a bad deal? I think I'm going to become like God, and all that really happens is I realize I need some clothes. But here is Satan. Their eyes are open. You know the picture here is? Did they know they were naked prior to this? Yes. But now they become aware of something they've never experienced before, and that's called shame and guilt. They are no longer in a place of innocence. Now they are in a place of guilt. And now they have a guilty, what we would call a guilty conscience. They know they've done that which they should not do. And yes, Satan was half right. Their eyes have become open to good and evil. And they have guilt now and shame now as a result of their sin. And what are they going to do? What do your kids do? What do little ones do when they do something they know they shouldn't have done? What do they do? They always try to do what? They try to cover it up, don't they? And what is Adam and Eve going to do? They're going to try to cover their guilt and their shame. And they're going to try to sew these little fig leaves together. And folks, it's meant to be laughable. It's pathetic. Because it's not even really about covering their nakedness. It's about covering their guilt and their shame. And quite frankly, it's going to take a whole lot more than some fig leaves to cover the guilt and the shame that weighs upon their heart. And honestly, are there not people today, they have a guilty conscience because they know they have sinned. They know they are accountable to God. And what do they try to do? They try to cover their guilt in all kinds of ways, don't they? Some people, they try to cover their guilt in in religious activities and in their own uh, righteous goodness and works. In fact, Jesus, on on his Passion Week as he enters into Jerusalem, what, what kind of tree does he curse? A fig tree. A fig tree. And some commentators believe, it's the only part of God's creation that Jesus ever cursed, what he's cursing there because it's symbolic of Israel. And what is Israel trying to do? They're trying to earn their way to God on the basis of their own good works. They're trying to cover their sinfulness in their own righteous activities. And so here's Adam and Eve. They're trying to cover their guilt. It's not going to work. 
Because there's no amount of external activities that can change the guilt now of their heart. And then what else do they do? Not only do they try to cover up their sin, but now they're going to attempt to hide from God in verse 8. Adam's now hiding from God, and it's it's really quite silly because you can't hide from God, can you? But there's a lot of people who do the exact same thing. They're trying to hide from God by not going to church, or they think they can hide from God at their office or their girlfriend's apartment or wherever else, but they think they can hide from God. I'm here to tell you, not only can Adam not hide geographically from God, he can't hide spiritually from God. God sees right into his heart and knows exactly what's occurred. And the same is true of you. You can run from God, but you can't hide from God. He knows exactly where you're at. And so here are they, they're trying to cover their sin. They're trying to cover and hide. And sin now has destroyed everything. It's, it's, it's messed them up internally. Even Adam, he's not thinking right, is he? I mean, who thinks that they can hide from God? Adam knows who God is. He's not thinking right. His heart's not right. He's trying to cover up his sin. He's been affected spiritually. This guy who was made by God and for God is now running from God. And quite frankly, man has been running and rebelling from God ever since, haven't they? That the natural inclination of our hearts is we want independence. We want to do whatever we want to do. We don't, we're not naturally inclined to follow God. We rebel. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. We don't want God or Jesus telling us what to do. That is the heart of man, and it begins right here. And it's not only affected them spiritually, it's affected them relationally. Everything in the home is now messed up. Adam, who was intended to love and lead his wife, God comes to him. God comes to him first because he's accountable in a way that she is not. And he comes to him, and he calls Adam to account, and what does Adam do? The woman you gave me, she wasn't even a prayer concern, God. I didn't ask for her. I kind of like the giraffe, and you brought her along. And it's sad because here's a guy that was intended to love his wife and lead his wife and lay down his life for his wife, and the first thing he does when he's called to account to sin, he throws her under the bus. And the blame game begins right here. They start blaming and she's going to blame. Is that not our culture today? It's always somebody else's fault. And they won't own up to their sin. It's a powerful picture. The man, the woman, the crown of God's creation, fellowship with God, perfection, and they go to a place of corruption in a matter of verses. And sin has affected all of us, hasn't it? I mean, we see the results of sin all around us. You know, secular humanism evolution says that basically man is good. It's so funny because they see man as man is, is ascending, that man starts out as very primitive and he's ascending and he's progressively getting better. Is there anybody who looks at this world objectively and says, boy, it's getting better every day? No, but the picture of God's word is that man starts up here as the pinnacle in perfection, and man is doing what? He's descending into depravity. Listen to me today. In fact, Abraham Maslow said this week that man is intrinsically good and has no instincts towards evil. Do you believe that? This is the same guy that created, if you were in high school and you saw the hierarchy of needs, you remember this? And at the very top of that pyramid was what? Self-actualization. 
that, that the goal of life is to follow your heart and become the best you that you can possibly be because you are good. And if you'll just follow your heart, you'll become self-actualized and you'll become great. What a lie. A lie of Satan. Because the Bible tells us we're not good. Due to the sin of Adam, through one man's sin, centered into the world, and death through sin, because all sinned. See, the great tragedy of this is not just that they broke God's law. The great tragedy is that in their breaking of the law, in their sin, now man, all of us born after Adam and Eve, we have been spoiled from becoming all that God intended us to be and to do. And it's a sad place. But into that sadness, what do we see? We see God's devotion, don't we? Because what happens after they sin? God comes to them. God comes to, to Adam and Eve. They hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the cool of the day, that, that's what? That's the morning time. So some believe, you don't go too deep, but they believe that the sin occurs at night. And now it's morning. And the picture here is that every morning, God and Adam and Eve, at an appointed time, would have a morning stroll. And so God shows up, and they're nowhere to be found. They're not there. What are they doing? They're hiding. Adam will tell God, it's because I'm afraid of you. I'm naked, and I'm afraid. And in Adam's defense, all that Adam has known to this point of God is what? That God is holy. God is powerful. God is majestic. God is glorious. He knows nothing of God's mercy. He knows nothing of God's grace. And the beauty of this, it's in Adam's sin that we're going to learn of the fullness of God's majesty and his grace and his mercy that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Isn't that a powerful picture? That is only in the mess up and the dirtiness of Adam and Eve sinned that we will learn that God is far greater than we possibly ever could have imagined. And so God calls out to Adam, where are you, Adam? Now, does God know where Adam is? Yeah, he knows where Adam is. It's, a, it's quite frankly, it's an unusual question because why would God want to know where Adam is? He knows where he's at. What is God doing? It's not only an unusual question, quite honestly, it's a kind question, isn't it? Because what God is doing is he's drawing Adam out. God is taking the initiative to draw Adam out. And all the questions that will move along from here, they're questions in an attempt to get Adam to own up to his sin. He's not asking these questions to get information for himself. He's asking the questions of Adam and Eve to give them information about themselves. God is getting Adam and Eve to fess up to their sin. It's what we call confession because there cannot be restoration with God until there is first confession. God wrestles with Jacob, and at the end of that, what does he say? He asked Jacob, what is your name? Did God know Jacob's name? Yes, he made Jacob. What is he doing? Jacob's name means what? It means deceiver. He's getting Jacob to fess up to the fact that, yes, God, I am a sinner, and you're my only hope. And what God is doing in an act of kindness, was this fun for Adam and Eve? What would you do, Adam? He's going to blame Eve. Eve, what did you do? What is he getting them to do? He's getting them to confess their sin. 
And I can imagine it was not a joyful process for Adam and Eve to endure. But God could have done nothing more loving than to initiate with them, to draw them unto himself, to reveal their sins so that there could be forgiveness. And listen to me. God is drawing you. He's called the hound of heaven. And aren't you grateful today that you didn't go looking for God? When you didn't want God or care anything about God, he came looking for you. And he took the initiative and he drew you to himself. Not to condemn you so that he could cover you in the shed blood of his Jesus. Not to condemn you so that he could, but so that he might forgive you and have restored fellowship with you. That is the heart you see of God here. That he does not want separation from Adam and Eve. He wants restoration and fellowship. So he comes after them. But they don't want to. Why don't they just walk out and say, God, here we are. We messed up. We goofed. The reason they don't do it is the same reason that a lot of people won't go to church. Not a church that preaches God's word. Because if you go to church and hear God's word, what do you find out? God is speaking to you. And what does he do? He calls out your sin. And most people don't want to be called on the carpet for their sin. What they don't realize is God calling them the carpet for their sin is an act of kindness and love to draw them back into fellowship with himself. Same reason a lot of people don't read their Bibles. Because when you read your Bible, what do you find out? God speaks, doesn't he? Ooh, he speaks. And he reveals sin, doesn't he? But why does he do it? Because he loves us. The same reason a parent that really loves their child won't let them continue in rebellion but will put consequences in their life to get them to understand the nature of their sin so that they might know fellowship with them and with God. And let me ask you this. What is there in Adam that would cause God to go looking for him? And I'm going to put it in a more personal way and you can put it in a personal way for you. This week I had to ask myself, what is there in me that would cause God to come looking for me? And you know what the answer to that question is? Nothing. So why does God go looking for Adam? Because God is a God who abounds in grace and mercy and forgiveness. The more you read this Bible, the more you begin to understand that God creates the world and, the man, and he creates man so that he can just show off how glorious he truly is. I am a God who's abounding in love. You ever loved somebody and you, boy, you loved them and you, and you loved them, you pursued them, you did all kinds of things for them, man, you just loved that person to death, but when it got down to it, they rejected you. You had pursued them, pursued them, and then they finally turned around and said, I don't want you. And probably your heart was, well, if you don't want me, I don't want you, and we're done. Aren't you glad God isn't like us? Wow, he makes this beautiful home for them, gives them everything so that he can enjoy fellowship with them, and then we don't get just a little while in, and they turn their back on God and say, boy, the lies of Satan are a lot more appealing than the goodness of your character. But then in their filth and mess, God comes to them and says, it's okay. And you know what we're going to find out next week? They sin. And who, who is it that will ultimately get cursed? Christ. God will make a promise that I'm going to send somebody. I can't overlook sin. Sin, is, sin must be judged. But it's okay. I'm going to send somebody. 
there's going to be the seed of the woman, one man, and he's going to crush Satan, but he's going to be wounded in the transaction. He's going to be hurt, and he'll die, and he'll suffer for you. Folks, this is overwhelming. You and I sinned, and God struck his son. And Isaiah 53 says the Lord was pleased to crush him. Why? So that he could regain fellowship with you and with me. And I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you've bought into the lies of Satan. Satan has deceived you. And you know what he's told you? He's told you God's word can't be trusted. God's word can't be relied upon. He's come to you and said, there is no judgment. You can jump the fence. You can do whatever you want to do. And there is no judgment. And God doesn't really love you. He's holding out on you. you got to jump the fence if you really want to be the greater you that you want to be. And maybe that was you. And you bought into that lie. And you got away from God. And you left him. And you disobeyed. And today, I can tell you that Satan is a liar. And if you're not there today, you're going to find yourself eventually in a place of brokenness and despair. Because Satan's path is a path that always leads to destruction. And maybe today you find yourself in a place of guilt and a place of shame. And maybe Satan is whispering into your ear, you can't go back to God. You've messed up too much. He'll never take you back. I can tell you today on the truthfulness of God's word, that is a lie. God still loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And he stands as the father in the prodigal son's story saying, come home. Where are you today? He's calling out, where are you? Come home. There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's freedom. Come home. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are a God abounding in grace and mercy. God, I pray if there's anybody here that's wandered, uh, your scripture says we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God, if there's somebody here that's strayed and wandered, and maybe they're feeling the weight of their guilt and their shame, I pray this morning they would come home to Jesus. God, I pray that they would trust in you and know today that through confession and repentance, there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's restoration. God, I pray that they would come home to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. At this time, I wanna invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, how you can come home to God through faith in Christ. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you, love to pray with you. This is your time this morning. No, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.